Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954 when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992 when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit ahead of the 91 FA Cup final quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. There really was a period of time, and we're probably talking at least several decades here, where British goalkeepers, primarily the English custodians, were the best in the world. The pool of world-class goalkeepers in the old First Division was at times, quite frankly, ridiculous. Keepers such as Phil Parks, who was for a long time the most expensive keeper in the world when he moved from QPR to West Ham in the late 70s, barely got a look in for England. Jimmy Rimmer, Aston Villa's title-winning keeper, as we'll hear this week, got what is technically half a cap. My guest this week is a man who served one of our big clubs with huge distinction, making over 600 appearances for the club his family supported. Alongside Frank Swift and Bert Troutman, Joe Corrigan is rightly regarded as one of Manchester City's greatest ever keepers. In May 81, in both what was the 100th FA Cup final and the replay, Corrigan was man of the match in both games and unfortunate to be on the losing side. It was supposedly the era of Ray Clements and Peter Shilton, both keeping goal for what were then the country's top clubs, Liverpool and Forest, and vying to be England's number one. Joe Corrigan was the nominal number three, but in those two games at Wembley in May 81, he reminded the country what an exceptional keeper he was, and while he is rightly proud to have won nine England caps, it should have been more. In fact, Corrigan was the first of England's three great keepers of the 70s and 80s to have won a European trophy, when at just 22 he was in City's 1970 European Cup Winners' Cup team. He'd broken into that great Mercer Allison team midway through its late 60s, early 70s glory days, and as a young keeper, had come under the close tutelage of English football's visionary coach Malcolm Allison. Unlike Clements and to a lesser extent Shilton, Corrigan saw out the bulk of his career at a club that was often in a state of flux from the moment Allison effectively forced Joe Mercer out of the managerial hot seat in the early 70s. Main Road saw other fine teams come through, most notably under Tony Book in the mid-70s, but they could never go the extra step. The loss of the talismanic Colin Bell as big a blow to the sky-blue half of Manchester as the premature exit of Mercer. 
This week, we look back at Joe Corrigan's eventful career from his early difficulties winning over the City fans to being voted the Supporters Player of the Year as he finally convinced the City faithful of his talents to the difficulties later on of Malcolm Allison's disastrous return to the club in the late 70s and no less disastrous, perhaps, the collapse of John Bond's initially promising Manchester City revamp in the early 80s. This is Joe Corrigan. We're here to talk about your playing career, but your career and your life even could have been very different after a a bump on your knee in primary school developed into something more serious and almost cost you your leg. Tell us what happened. Um, Well, it was I was playing in the playground, but football as usual, but I was playing outfield. And as I was playing, I ran into the one of the pillars that was uh, on the wall that was at the back of the at the back of the school. I went home, and um, my knee root was really painful. So my mother, sorry, my mother rang the doctors. That's right. And the doctor came round, Doctor Huddlestone. I was lying in bed, I had a temperature, a terrible ache in my knee. And the next thing I knew, my mum says we're going to hospital. Uh, the doctor. Uh, diagnosed that I'd got osteomyelitis in my right knee and unbeknown to me at that time he'd already suffered with that himself he knew it straight away and he rushed me into the children's hospital in Presbury in Manchester uh, or Salford as it is now I do beg your pardon and um, my dad unbeknown again after when I was more what would you say about 14, 15, my dad told me that that night he had to sign a form to say that if the injections, which was a new course of treatment for that kind of disease, um, didn't work, they had permission to amputate my leg. Fortunately, it was caught early enough because of the doctor. and My leg responded to the course of treatment that I, that I was given. Had this Dr Huddleston not had experience of that type of injury himself was there a chance that that might have been missed i would have i would have imagined so because you know he he gave me i think it was a i'm not quite sure actually what he actually gave me but he gave me an injection while i was at home and then the ambulance came straight away and there was a a new treatment that apparently this is what i've been led to believe at that time it was a very very serious condition and nowadays it's a run of the mill condition it's still a still a nasty thing to have but it's a kind of a run of the mill kind of uh, infection uh, if he hadn't have had that knowledge uh, he might have waited a, a couple of days longer and it might have been a bit too late there is a nice dedication from you to dr huddleston in your 2008 autobiography so it's yeah. obviously something that stayed with you and i thought that was a uh, quite a, a touch in moment in the book let's go back to the very beginning you're born in Manchester several years after the war your dad was away fighting in Korea what was it like growing up in Manchester at that time I was born in St Mary's in Manchester uh, I, my mother w- lived with her mother and father in Sale in uh, which was then Cheshire it's now Greater Manchester so I was brought up in in Sale it was the usual, after the war, everybody was still on rations. 
Um, and then in around 1950, we were moved from Sale to Sale Moor into a council estate where my sister was born, Bernadette, in 1950. And then we, it was just an ongoing growing up period, you know, got, went to school. My dad came back from Korea, thank God. And we had my brother Paul, my brother Kevin, and then the last one was my brother Anthony, who was born in 1980. So there were seven of us living in this three-bedroomed terraced house in, in Salemore, which was a fantastic area to grow up in because we were all in, in the same boat, working class people. We were very lucky in the fact that just outside the door, we had a little croft with a few trees on, which later became my goals where I used to dive about in front. You know, you can't do that nowadays. I mean, every sign that you see is no ball games allowed, but we, we grew up in a, an era where that was our only form of entertainment. Do you remember your dad coming back from the Korean War? Or were yeah, you too I young? remember my dad coming back because he brought me an American Jeep uh, on his way back from London. Um, he brought it with him and I, I used to drive it all around. It's a great memory to have, even though it was what would have been about four or five, still can remember it, green, big American star on the bonnet, or the hood as they would call it. And great times, brilliant times and, you know, we were lucky in that respect that we could go out and we could play and we had to form our own form of entertainment. Football was one of them. There's something in your background that really struck a chord with me. Your family was Catholic and my family was also Catholic. In my case, it happened much later, but my schooling was all Catholic until I was 16. When I suddenly went to college outside of that bubble, that Catholic bubble and meeting people from other faiths, and I include Church of England in that, that was a massive thing for me, a good thing, a positive thing. In your case, it happens far earlier in your life. You're one of the few Catholic kids attending Sale Grammar School, and you do say that, that it was a bit of an eye-opener for you. At the same time, you're slightly ostracized because you're a Catholic kid. Yeah, it was one of those things in those days. We tried to get into De La Salle colleges and places like that, the Catholic schools in, Man- in and around the Manchester area, but it was different in those days. The nearest one we could get to, uh, I could get into, sorry, was Sale Grammar School for Boys. And it was a, a real eye-opener because religion played a big part in it and we weren't allowed to go into assembly uh, and we had to go into the classroom and and when GCEs were on, you know, A-levels were on at those times, we weren't even allowed to have assembly in the, in the main hall. We had to go into our classrooms, and the, in the classrooms we were made to go out and stand in the corridors, the Catholics and the, the Catholic lads and the Jewish lads. Um, and it was a bit, it was a big shock. And I put it in the book was me and the lads, or the, the lads who were stood outside in the corridor, we, we were having a little bit of a laugh and a joke, and the, the teacher heard it which maybe was a, a bit wrong, you know, but we were, we were only young kids. And we were sent to the, to the headmaster and we were given the cane for being irreverent. Right. So uh, it was, <laughs> I think, well, I didn't even know what the word meant. So, uh, you know, it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was strange, but it was a great, great school, brilliant school for education. Um, we weren't allowed to play football. We could only play rugby. I was the house uh, captain for the rugby team. I played cricket for the school. I got to Cheshire trials. No, sorry, I played for Cheshire and I got to England trials, but I broke my arm and couldn't go to the England trial. But it was a fantastic school, fantastic education. 
even though it wasn't nice at the time, I'm sure that part of that the, the situation with regards to religion made it a little bit easier when you go out into the wide world um, and you, you could cope with the two sides. You did play quite a bit of rugby. The school was rugby union orientated. And I wonder if the discipline of playing such a tough sport helped you in a very hard era of football. Very much so, because in those days you didn't you didn't have any lifting. You had to get the ball at its highest point from in a line out because I was a second row forward, and you, you had to use your own momentum to get off the floor. And the shape of the ball helped you in a little way to get your ideals of catching the ball at its highest point with no help and in and among groups of people, which was a, a, a great what you would call a great base to actually go into the art of goalkeeping as a novice. Those are your principles that we worked on. As a kid, you had a soft spot for Manchester United. Harry Gregg, the United keeper at the time, was one of your early heroes. He comes into your life a little later. We'll come to that shortly. Were your family City or United fans? All my family were City fans. I had a trial for Manchester City because I went from school to Trafford Park and worked at AEI. And I was playing in the interdepartmental cup, as they used to call it, playing for the uh, training school. And a guy came up to me after the game. I was playing centre-half, actually. But I went in, a, in goal before the game, half-time and after the game. And while I was pulling down nets after the game, uh, this guy came up and asked me, would I like to have a trial for one of the big clubs in Manchester? And I said, yeah, not, you know, not thinking anything would come from it. And then um, I went into a place called uh, Nosley Road Tool Engage, which was part of um, AEI. And this guy was actually in, in that department. And he told me that he'd written off. And I think it was a couple of weeks after, sometime in late September, October of 66, he came with a, a postcard, as it was, from Harry Godwin, and it said to turn up for a trial on a Thursday night, and the rest is history. The ironic thing about it was, about two, three weeks after that, I got another postcard from Manchester United asking me for a trial to go at United, and my dad picked it up, looked at me, and ripped it up and put it in the bin because he said, listen, son, you've signed for Manchester City, you know, you do what you're told. But before that, going back to when I was at grammar school, I used to play in a sailing altering of Open Age League and my uncle and all his mates were massive Man United fans and my uncle Brian was at home then but moved out to Canada. They were all Man United fans. But my dad said to me, listen, there's, you know, there's two teams in this town. The other one, Manchester City. So, you know, go and have a look at them every now and again. So we used to go down every one Saturday to be a Man United and one Saturday to be a Man City. It's also your dad who tells you about Bert Troutman for the first time. Suddenly, yeah, that was the one, yeah. Suddenly there's another, another great keeper in your life to follow. Style-wise, how did Bert Troutman and Harry Gregg differ? I think Harry was more of an aggressive type of goalkeeper. Bert was um, what you would call, what would you call, Rolls-Royce of goalkeepers. And Harry was more of a, he was a great goalkeeper, Harry. Don't, and don't set this the wrong way, I'm sure he wouldn't because I loved him dearly. He was a more of a, an aggressive, rough and tumble type. He was more of a, what would you call it now, a, a Range Rover type rather than a Rolls Royce type. You know, go anywhere, do anything, dive at anywhere. And Bert, the same, but he was he was more refined, if you would put it that way. 
Peggy was a bit more rougher in dealing with crosses, whereas Bert was a little bit less um, on that side. But both magnificent goalkeepers and both magnificent men. So as you join City, they're in the ascendancy. You've got the Joe Mercer, Malcolm Allison team is coming through, ready to challenge the dominant teams of the day. I found it very interesting that right away, Malcolm Allison takes you under his wing and he's taking you for one-on-one goalkeeping coaching sessions, even though he'd never been a keeper. Tell us about your early recollections of working with him and what made this early incarnation of Allison, the football coach, so special? Going, answering your, your second point, the special part about Malcolm was he was, he was willing to try anything. And he brought in, only for a, only for a few occasions, a, a, a great goalkeeper called Bert Williams, played for England, um, and he taught Malcolm a lot. Malcolm taught me what he learned, what he used to bring Bert in to show you what you were, what you were supposed to be doing. You know, he, he, he was just a great motivator, and he, he, as you just rightly said, he used to take me out every time he possibly could, before I'd even got in the first team. Um, and train and train and train that's all I ever did and then when Harry Gregg came in on the scene he just took over as manager of Shrewsbury Town and he had a young goalkeeper called John Phillips who went on to play for Chelsea and he took me there as as like a reserve really which was brilliant for me because I had a, a rise in my wages because he had a different wage structure playing in the reserves and playing in the A and B team and uh, I learned so much. It was rough and tumble. You got a fresh kit Monday morning and you still wore the same kit on a Friday afternoon. And it used to stand up in the corners on, you know, at the end of the week. It was so mud clad. But it was a, a, an, another kind of learning process, not just of football, but of life. It was very unusual back then to be loaned out to another club, wasn't it? Very, very rare. I'd never heard of it. And um, when Malcolm and... Um, came in and said, I want you to go on loan. I, I, I thought, what the hell's all that? And he said, look, there's no problem. I just want you to learn with another person. And it was because Harry was there. I don't think it had gone to a, an outfield coach. He thought, Malcolm thought it would have benefited me more in, in the long run, which he did. The whole goalkeeper coaching sessions, again, that was when Malcolm Allison would sometimes bring in a specialist keeper to, to have a session with you. Again, that's far from the norm. Not, not many clubs were doing that at that time. No, but this was what Malcolm was all about. He was so forward-looking in his, in his outlook of what football should be playing. We, the old adage was a goalkeeper used to do all his work in the goal, whereas when I first joined Manchester City in '66, I used to be a, a long-distance runner, cross-country runner for the school, and we had to go to Withenshaw Park every Monday. In the mark, we played Saturday Wednesday, Saturday, we still went on a Monday. It was a different time with Derek Ibbotson. And we were always fit, but as the word is, a butcher's dogs. But it was because of Malcolm's new input of all different ideals about what how football should be played and how players should be trained. You were six four six five. This is the mid to late 60s. That's really the normal height now for a keeper. But back then, even in the 80s, when you retired in the mid 80s, that was unusually tall. Well, unusually tall for that time. Did that change the perception, do you think, of your goalkeeping abilities early on? Because you, you were tall, Malcolm was always of the opinion and always demanded that you came for crosses. 
and that was the foremost in your thoughts about how you had to play in goals to come and take and be commanding of the box. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But I remember playing in a game, um, I think it was against Coventry, away from home, and I came out for a cross, and I, I knew I shouldn't have been coming for the cross. But I got to it, tried to catch it, and it dropped down, and it was put in the back of the net. And we were on the bus going home, and Tommy Booth said to me, Joe, he said, what on earth are you doing? He said, well, I said to him, well, it's my job, Tommy. He said, no, your job is to come and get crosses that you can come and deal with. If anybody can beat you with a header from further out than 12 yards, it's got to be some great header. You know, we can deal with those. You come and do what you can do. Don't come and do the jobs that we could do. It sunk in and it, it was a learning learning curve. He was even giving me information and I was giving him it. You know, we were, Tom was a year younger than me. We were both in the same youth team. It was, in, it was embedded in you, the fact that you, you had to come for crosses because you were, there were big, big centre-forwards around that day and that's the, game, the way the game was played. You don't see them that often anymore. But it was a great upbringing. And this is where I go back to the, the, the fact that learning to deal with a ball in the rugby sense gave me a little bit more of an edge on the crossing side. Before we go to your first team debut, let's just briefly look at the goalkeepers ahead of you at the time at uh, City. The first choice, I think, was Harry Dowd. You've got Ken Mulhern, I think, is the understudy. What kind of keepers were they? They were all great keepers. They were all... The one thing I would say about every one of them is we were all helping one another. We were all looking after one another's backs. You know, I was the young upstart coming in because Malcolm put in the press, I'm going to make Joe one of the best goalkeepers in the world before, you know, signed professional. And, you know, some people may, might have taken umbrage with it, but the, the lads were brilliant. Because of Ken coming in, it offered me the, uh, my first team game against Blackpool in 1967 um, because he came in, he was cup-tied because he played for Stockport in the League Cup. Harry got injured with a broken arm. Uh, and Alan Ogley had moved to Stockport in the swap with Ken. And it was a fantastic time in the fact that, you, you know, they weren't able to go out and buy another goalkeeper. They'd give a youngster a chance in those days. And I, I played. I played the first game, we drew 1-1. And played the second game, we won 2-0 at Blackpool. And it gives you that sense of, I'd like to try this again. It's a magnificent feeling when you make that, that step to play in the first team. Because I always remember getting a, a message off Harry, Harry Gregg saying to me, you've made it, you've got in the first team, now the hardest part. It's hard enough getting in the first team, but the hardest part is staying in the first team. If I remember rightly, on your first team debut, I think you make an error on the Blackpool goal early on. There's advice, I think it comes from Bert Troutman, maybe reminding you that he had a similar experience in his first game. The actual game against Blackpool, I think that's the first time I ever touched the ball. I think it was around about 12 minutes. The second time I touched the ball was 12 and a half minutes and I, I was picking it out of the net. The ball went straight through my legs and you've got nowhere to hide. That wasn't the game that Bert Trollman gave me those words. That came later on in my career when we were playing West Ham. Uh, Ronnie Boyce scored that goal from 40 yards and we got beat 5-2. Uh, it was Jimmy Greaves' debut for West Ham. I think he scored two goals that day. Going back to the Blackpool game, it was brilliant because you had people like Tony Buck, Mike Summerby, Francis Lee, people like that who, who would take you 
to one side and say, look, don't worry about it. Get on with the game. You've you made a mistake. We drew 1-1. We played in the reserves at Wolverhampton on the Saturday and then I had to travel from Wolverhampton to Blackpool because the first team had gone away because we were playing Blackpool. They went away for a training session and we stayed at the Norbrecht Castle Hotel and we used to train on the beach. But that was my first experience of travelling away with the first team. We won 2-0 and I had a really, really good game. Unfortunately for me, unfortunately for Harry, he got fitter and he played the next round against Fulham in London, but I was taken down in London. But going back to the, the West Ham game, the commissioner, Len, came down, knocked on the door and I was as low as a snake's belly. Asked Joe Mercer, would it be possible for me to go upstairs because Bert Trotman wanted a word with me and I'm sat in the corner thinking, oh my God, not only have I let one like that, a goal like that from Ronnie Boyce in, Bert Trotman happened to be in the stadium and watching it. And after I went upstairs, I went into the boardroom and Bert took me to one side and went through a scenario that he'd let a goal in even worse than the one I'd let in. And they got beat six at home. And he just said, if you just get on with the game. He said to me a very strange thing. He said, concentrate more on your strengths than your weaknesses because your strengths will get better and better and better and your weaknesses will get less and less and less. You know, people used to say, oh, no, work on your weaknesses. Bert was the opposite. And it was a great philosophy to have. He said, don't, you know, he said, don't forget I made that mistake. I said, yeah, but Bert, you weren't, you weren't on television. <laughs> you didn't have television. And, and uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, in fact, uh, funny enough, I, somebody sent me the, uh, it was on uh, one of the YouTube things yesterday, and somebody sent it to me on my phone, the game. I was just looking at the pitch. It was an absolute mud bath. And, you know, you couldn't see any green on the pitch. And you're thinking, God, oh, my, you're playing in those conditions. They wouldn't go out today walk on that little well I'll, I'll jump forward just for a moment because you've reminded me of something one of my early football memories is and we'll come to that towards the end of the interview the um, shock result at Halifax in 1980 and if I remember rightly that pitch was so muddy and it was just fairly common back then wasn't it really yeah yeah it was that was the norm you know I played you you know you look at the games Leeds United and not so much Liverpool, even though they were they were boggy-ish. But you had Leeds, you had Derby County, you had, you know, even ours. Ours was ours was terrible. But it was a level playing field, apart from the ground being level. Yeah. But it was uh, everybody had those type of pitches to play. Everybody used to love to go down and play Arsenal because they had the fantastic pitches. But we just got on with it, and we, you know, imagine, you know, the likes of. Georgie Best and Colin Bell and, you know, Jimmy Greaves playing in the conditions that they play today. It would be absolutely amazing. I'm sure they would. I'd, I'd like to see how one or two of the players of today would cope with the conditions that we have to play with, considering what they play on, you know, carpets today. You make your league debut for City towards the end of the 68-69 season. I think it's away at Ipswich. City are defending league champions by now. They haven't, though, made a good defence of the title. Where was the team that you were coming into right now in terms of its development? They'd won the league and they were, as you said, but they had this fantastic run in the cup. And that's the reason I was given the numbers of games that I got in that season is because Ken had left and there was only myself who was playing the reserves and Ronnie Healy, uh, who was in the youth team. And that was, it was just to protect Harry more than anything. 
no, Ken, Ken was injured, sorry, Ken, that's right, Ken Andler, Ken was injured. And it gave me the opportunity to play in the, those games, which was phenomenal because I played against Nottingham Forest, I played against Ipswich Town, Liverpool at home. It was absolutely amazing and gives you that incentive to try and try even harder in your training to, to want it every week. 69-70, that's your breakthrough season. You start off as first choice. You play in the Charity Shield at Leeds. Uh, you lose 2-1, but you've started the season first choice. Were you ready at that stage for that opportunity? I was surprised that I got the opportunity because Harry was in the team that won the FA Cup. And I still couldn't put my head around it why I got in the first team at the, straight from the start of the season. I, you know, I played in the uh, pre-season friendlies, played against Ajax and played in the Prince of Wales' investor game at, at Bangor and at Carnarvon, I do beg your pardon. And, you know, when you sit, sit back now, you think, was it a strange decision? It wasn't a strange decision because I wanted to play. It's just that you would have thought, like, the likes of, well, the supporters would have thought, well, why is Joe a young unknown coming in after Harry's done so well and played in the, uh, in the FA Cup final and won it? But, you know, I tried to do the best I could. I started the season and in November I got my first, my only under-23, as it was in those days, under-23 cap. And we were on our way to Wembley in the League Cup final against West Bromwich Albion. Where you play on an awful pitch again. I think it was the day after the Horse of the Year show. Yeah, the ironic thing about it was after the, the League Cup semi-final win against Manchester United, I got dropped and I was out of the team for about six weeks. That again, you know, it was put down mainly to my weight. I was what, 15 stone, 15 stone four, 15 stone five. Um, I was six foot five, don't forget. And I didn't think it was the right thing at the time, but there was other factors happening around my personal life at home. You come from a, you know, a working class background and all of a sudden you're in the first team at Manchester City. I would say it did affect me certain ways, but, but it, you know, Dropping me brought me right back to earth, and um, they, you know, I'm sure it was done for that reason. From then on, we went to win the League Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup at the end of that season as well. The European Cup Winners' Cup final against Gornick, I think that was in Vienna, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, you, you played on the same night as the Chelsea Leeds FA Cup final replay, and therefore the City game isn't televised. Again, it illustrates just how much the game has changed now. You can't imagine that happening now. No, no, you, you, no way, no way. It, it, but again, it was the way the FA worked in those days. They, they, they wanted it to be all British. I'm sure the BBC didn't really realise it could have been a, a draw. So it happened to draw and lead against Chelsea. So it had to happen. And unfortunately, we were the losers. You know, it was shown everywhere over Europe apart from in England. So, um, but we didn't matter. We went on to win the cup and that was the be all and end all because that's what we wanted to do. How had you found European football? Very strange because we played Bilbao in uh, the first round. From what I can recollect is that we were all prepared and we were all in the tunnel and all of a sudden the referee came out and said the kickoff's been delayed. I think it was 30 minutes. For what reason, I, don't, I can't remember. But to, to go out and play in an atmosphere, it was an absolutely frightening atmosphere to play in. They were so passionate, the Bilbao supporters. You know, I went to pick a ball that had gone for a goal kick and 
as they were picking the ball up just by the wall where the supporters were, they were drinking, which I didn't know, out of sheepskin things called pourons. They were drinking, drinking wine. They were, they were out, out of the trees. They were drunk as lords, but it was a fabulous, it was, again, it's a learning experience. It's, it's part and parcel of you growing up into be a, a, a man and be a, a top footballer. But again, another one, another incident that happened in that, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to play the ball out from the back. And there's a little, I can't remember his name, a little uh, inside forward stood in front of me. And the next thing, the ball's on the floor and he's knocked it into the back of the net and the referee's blown up and given a free kick. He knocked the ball out of my hands with his hand, so he gave me a handball against him. But it's just that part of the sneaky way that the, the Europeans seem to be, whether they're still the same, I'm not quite sure. So at a, at a young age, you've got a, a European trophy winning medal and uh, the following season, City are doing fairly well. The season, I think, seventy seventy one, kind of implodes after Christmas. But you do reach the semi-finals of the Cup Winners' Cup again. You're knocked out by Chelsea this time. Is this the point at which that great City team begins to break up? Yes, uh, and it happened in conjunction with the fact that Malcolm wanted to be a little bit more influence in the club than than he was at the time. I think he want, his ambition was to become manager. There was a big rumbling about the board and everything. The, the Alexanders sold out to Peter Swales in his, in his organisation. So there was not only on the field, there was off the field as well. And most of the lads that were in that team went off in different ways. Franny left. It was just a breakup of a, of a situation uh, which affected everybody. And I'm not blaming that for my lack of form, but it was just part and parcel of what was going on at the club at the time. Every time I've read something about that, uh, the end of that Joe Mercer-Malcolm Allison partnership, and I, I don't know what you'll make of this analogy, but it reminds me of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown with Joe Mercer as Tony Blair and a power-hungry Gordon Brown. And that, that, that kind of feels a bit like Malcolm Allison because it was such a perfect partnership. And you think, well, if they hadn't gone their separate ways, maybe that great city team, maybe it would have become a, a, you know, a dynasty, a, a proper five, six, eight-year era of dominating English football. I agree with you. I think that was a, a, a massive mistake on the club's behalf to allow that scenario to happen. But... Malcolm was the up-and-coming, what you would call, power in football. Again, this is with experience, because I was there when he came back the second time, in the fact that he wanted to try and be the best at everything. You know, he was a fabulous guy, fantastic coach. But I feel he lost his way in the fact that he didn't have the ability in that when he got to the managers, he, did, he had a different kind of pressure that Joe could take off him. And he couldn't cope with that, and it made him a lesser manager than a coach. As a coach, he was fantastic. He was one of the lads, he, he helped everybody, he went out for a drink with the lads. But to become a manager, it needs a special kind of person. He just couldn't handle it. There's a period after Joe Mercer leaves where there are a few managerial changes. Just before, I think, Joe Mercer leaves... You've got the famous 71-72 season. You've got Wynne Davis has arrived uh, from Newcastle, added a, a different dimension to the team. You've got the likes of Willie Donachie, Ian Mellor, Tony Towers are, are coming 
through. Obviously, a lot has been said about Rodney Marsh and how his arrival cost you the title. The following season doesn't start off brilliantly. I think Joe Mercer is gone and things go badly for Allison as manager. Johnny Hart takes over again, an inside appointment. The job had a massive impact on Johnny Hart physically. For me, you could see Johnny go from a, a really, really nice person. He still was a nice person, but his, his demeanour seemed to go because I don't think he had the ability or he wanted to do to confront senior players, which takes a lot. You know, you've got the forceful natures of the Francis Lees, the Mike Summerbees, the Rodney Marshes, Tony Book, people like that, George Heslop. Well, it, it was just, for me, it, it was the wrong decision for A, the club, and B, Johnny, because it did, I thought it did affect him a lot physically. He wasn't the same man after, you know, he left the club, he, he was left because of illness. And it was, it was really sad to see that. Ron Saunders arrives in November 73 and he doesn't survive the season either. So it's a very turbulent period in City's history, this. City lose the League Cup final to Wolves. Dennis Law, I think, he, he's arrived that season. There's also Keith McRae arrives as the world's most expensive keeper at the time. So at this particular point in your career, was there a chance of you leaving City? Because I, I know that I think Olympiacos were in for you at one point, weren't they? We used to go on uh, post end of season tours to, to Greece and we more than likely played Olympiacos or Panathinaikos, one of those two. While we were out there on tour, I got, I can't remember who was the manager then, but um, I think it might have been when Tony became manager. He came up to me and said, uh, Mr. Gulandris, who owned Olympiacos, uh, would like to sign you, and I said, no, I'm not going, I don't want to go. A, I didn't know a lot about Greek football, and B, I, I wanted to prove myself to try and get back into the first team at Manchester City, and there were lots of things going on at the time. Keith came, uh, I think Johnny Hart signed Keith, and Keith was in and out of the t- well, he had a long run in the team, but I had, was in and out of, you know, when Keith got a little knock, I'd go in and then come back out. In my first training session, uh, which Keith and I were doing, like swapping over and as you do as a goalkeeper, I I looked and I thought, no, I'm not. Because I'd asked for a transfer at the time. And Bobby Charlton apparently had offered £60,000 because he was manager at Preston North End and they'd offered £60,000 for me. And I went to this training session and looked. I still used to stand behind the goal. And I said to myself, no, you're going to stay here and you're going to try it hard because I felt I was a lot better than Keith watching him train. And whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing, as luck happened, I got back into the team when Tony Book became manager. Keith got an injury right on transfer deadline day. And so City were looking to buy Keith, but they didn't. Tony came to me and said, I want you to be the first team goalkeeper. And let's see how the season progresses. And from then on, it was, you know, I was the first team goalkeeper for a long, long time. By the time Dennis Law scores that famous goal at Old Trafford that effectively relegates United, you're back in goal for City. The game, we all know that isn't completed after a crowd invasion. What is less well known, and I didn't know this, is that... As the game was brought to an early end, you were keeping goal at the Stretford end and you find yourself surrounded by a mob of United fans. Pick up the story from there because it's a frightening situation. It 
it was, it was an unbelievable situation because I'm in the goals and everybody's, thank God the nets were still up and um, I was in the goal and wondering what they would do because I would then be walking towards the dressing room, which was on the halfway line in those days, through this, this mob that were running from the Stratford end. And two policemen came up to me and said, just stay there for a few minutes. So I'm thinking, yeah, what might you hang on? So, but they came back very quickly. There was three of them actually, I think, uh, one either side of me and one behind me walked me off to the halfway line and up the tunnel. And it, it, it was a frightening experience. It was horrific. But it was it was the way football fans were in the, you know at that particular time, and it was happening not not just at Old Trafford but all throughout the country. At this particular point, there's a new team starting to come through at City. There is. I think one very strange decision from this period under Tony Book, but we see managers sometimes do this where they award the captaincy to their most difficult player. And Tony Book makes Rodney Marsh's captain when it's clear that the two don't see eye to eye. And I guess that backfired. Big time. Big time. Um, it, it, it was a strange decision, but Tony had his ways and means. That's the way he wanted to take it. He was a new manager coming in. It always comes back to me when Rodney first joined the club. Everybody said Rodney was the reason why we didn't win the league that year. And I've had my opinion about it. But at the end of the day, it wasn't Rodney's fault. It was the club's fault in going out and buying him at the time. We were top of the league. We were at Easter. And from the time that Rodney first played for the club, was was against Chelsea, I think it was on the Easter Monday, we won 1-0 to was the end of the season where I think it was Derby County won it that year we only won three games between then and the end of the season and he seemed to he's a great great player don't take that away from me but it's just that if there's nothing wrong with an engine why do you go and bother fixing it because Rodney had bad I think he was off I think he'd been injured for about six weeks previous to that with a bad groin injury he wasn't in the fittest of conditions when he came to the club and you know, we were going great guns. Tony Towers was in midfield. We, we were going great guns. And Rodney came in and, and he, he just didn't seem to take us the next step that we all thought he would. And a lot of the, you know, it wasn't just me who was thinking. It was like the likes of Doyley and, you know, Alan Oakes and people like that. Who, you know, the solid players of the team that were really, really suffered in the fact that they were, they were knocked out of sync, if you want to put it that way. And the consequences were we didn't win the league that year. It would have been, you know, it's all all better in hindsight, but in, it would have been better signing Rodney or leaving the signing till the end of the season to see if we qualified for Europe or things like that. And then sign him. And then, you know, when he was fit, he could come and join us in pre-season. But it, they didn't. They wanted it there. And it just didn't seem to mould. And the reason why Bucky gave him the uh, captaincy. I, I hadn't a clue and a lot of other players didn't either. But that was, he was the manager in, and we all had to abide by that decision. 75-76 is an interesting season. There are some real quality players arriving at City. You've got Dennis Stewart, you've got Asa Hartford who was to have two spells at City, was still playing for Scotland at the 82 World Cup. Dave Watson comes, would have played at a World Cup for sure had England qualified in the 70s. You've got Joe Royal. You've got all that experience. Then you've got younger players coming through. Kenny Clements, Paul Power, Gary Owen, Peter Barnes. It's a good period for City. But against that, there is one shattering loss for the team. 
and that is the injury to Colin Bell. I mean, with Colin Bell, that team surely had the quality to get City back to where it had been in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, that was the one, the one missing link from a, the team being a really, really great team. We weren't that bad a team, to be fair, with all the names that you've just said. They were all fantastic players, fantastic lads. But losing Belly, it was, oh, dearly me, it, it, was, it was frightening. The impact it had on the team. We tried and tried and tried to replace him, but you, you can't replace players like that. Because, you know, he could defend, he could attack, he was box to box, he could head a ball, he could shoot right foot, left foot. He was just a, a, an amazing player, an amazing player, an amazing athlete. And he used to make us sick, as I've said to you previously, we used to go to Wittinshire Park every Monday morning. He used to make you sick when you were running around the park, breathing out of every orifice you possibly could. And Belly would be running around like a, as if it was a, just a run, you know, run in the park. His clothes would be as dry at the end as they were at the beginning. He was just a phenomenal athlete. It's a good time for City. Otherwise, you win the 76th League Cup final. City fans vote you the Supporters Player of the Year. And really, you'd had difficulties with the fans in your early years at City. You'd finally won them over. How did that feel? Well, fantastic, really. You know, as I say, I, you know, I go back to, to the start of the, to the interview. It, you know, I was a working class lad coming into something that I wanted to be ever since the day I can remember. I always wanted to be a goalkeeper and to then go out. You know, I was lucky enough to play for the England under-23s in my first full season at the club, but to to then go on and win a cup after the iffy times I'd had in like 74, 73, 74 time, to come back and then go into a cup final and win it, it it was amazing. And after winning that, I was then picked to go on the bicentennial tour with England in, in the following summer, in the you know, summer of 76. And it was just an amazing relief and, you know, it was brilliant. But that's what football's about. You know, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. And going through those bad times, I'm sure made me better, A, as a person and B, as a player, because you don't want to be forgotten. You want to be the best. And only hard work, and I learned that from Bertrand and I learned it from Malcolm. You have to work hard and you have to work hard at your basics. That put me in good stead for that, that bad time I was having because I, I had the ability to go back to basics and start again. You know, I've coached many, many goalkeepers in my career as well. And I've given them the same opinion is that when you're going through your bad patches, go back to your basics. If you don't, you won't succeed because your basics will get you back on a straight and narrow and you can progress from there. We'll come to your England debut in a moment. Uh, Just before we leave the whole you winning supporters player of the year, there's a really nice player-fan relationship that develops between you and a fan before games at Main Road. Barely imaginable now, and that's between yourself and a fan that, I don't know if they're still around, but known as Big Helen. Can you tell us... Helen Turner, yeah. Can you tell us who she was, how that evolved? How it evolved was... We all knew about Big Helen because she used to have a, a flower stall outside the Manchester Royal Infirmary and uh, the porters at the, the Royal Infirmary used to look after, used to make give her one of the wheelchairs. But, you know, if it was rainy, they'd cover her, make a cover over the flower stall. But it first came about when I got back in the first team. She came to me, I can't remember what game it was, I got back in the first team. She came up to me, it was a away game. As I'm getting off the bus, 
she gave me a sprig of heather. She said, I hope this brings you a bit of luck. And it did, you know, every game after that, whole land away, she used to give me this sprig of heather. And I used to have a, goal, a Sondico goalkeeping glove bag. And I used to put the sprigs of heather in the side pocket and uh, or I never would take them out. And they'd be there at the end of the season when it had finished. I'd, I'd empty the sprig of heather along with the pheasants and the partridges and, that were already <laughs> <they must> <laughs> in there as well. But it was, it was just a, a rapport that we got. It was, uh, she used to have a bell. She used to sit behind the, me in the Kipax, uh, not the Kipax, what am I talking about? The scoreboard end and the, the North Star. And just ring the bell all through the game and it was just a f- phenomenal she used to take kids on buses and pay for the buses and take the underprivileged kids and give them a day out of football matches and amazing woman city through and through but as you rightly say a, a person like that wouldn't survive today a because and sad thing about it was later on i heard when i was at liverpool that she went in one day with the bell and the, the powers that be took it off her because they thought it was a, a weapon now, that's the way football's changed, and, and rightly so in some cases, but, you know, she was a, an elderly woman with a bell in her hand, and she was a true, true Manchester City supporter. She crops up later in your story, and we'll come to that in a bit. Let's just go back to the USA Bicentennial Tournament. You come on as a sub at halftime against Italy. This is a very unusual game for a couple of reasons. England are two down. You come on, England win 3-2. There are two strange things here. The game is played in the Yankees baseball stadium. That's the first thing. And two, the game finishes with a punch up between several England and Italy players. You're never going to forget a game like that, are you? No, you don't. We don't forget a game. We played in Brazil. We played in Los Angeles Coliseum against Brazil. Then we flew across to New York. And the game, Jimmy Rimmer was picked to play in goal. I was a sub. Jimmy played the first half. And I'm at the bottom end, the furthest end away from the dressing room where all the grass is in the goal. And I'm diving about half-time, getting a bit of a warm-up and everything, not knowing. I saw Les Cocker run up the pitch straight towards me and says, you better get in the dressing room. The boss wants to speak to you. So I, off I ran, got in the dressing room. The boss says, right, you're playing. Get yourself changed, get yourself ready and you're off. And then, as you say, we ended up winning 3-2. I think it was Fiketti who was centre-half. I got come out for a cross and he tried to foul me and it was like everybody piled in uh, the referee gave the foul and we managed to survive because it was a tri- it was one of the great great Italian team uh, but the ironic thing about it was the part of the game I played was the goal line was the line between home base and first base so that's where the goal line was and in the middle of the 18 yard box was the the pitcher's mound it was like two foot higher than the rest of the stadium <laughs> No, but it was, again, an incredible atmosphere because it was like, I think it was about 40, say 45,000 people in the stadium. But I think there was only about 300 English. The rest of them were Italian. And to come away with a 3-2 win, it was, it was a, an amazing feeling. You make your debut, you end up on a winning team. Unfortunately, Jimmy never played again for England. And I, well, I played nine games, but I was in the squad from, from then right away through to 1982. What was Don Revy like as a manager? Very meticulous, kind of a dour kind of personality, but he, everything he did was by the book. He, you know, we had a, a dossier of every single player that we played against and we had to sit down and we had to read it. 
the night before every game that we played, we would have bingo and we would have a putting competition. It was all right. It, it was, again, another learning experience, the way other managers work. Unfortunately for Don, it didn't work out and he went off to the Middle East, uh, I'm sure, on a very, very nice salary. Ron Greenwood comes in. You're a regular in the England squad by now, but then we have that bizarre arrangement that goes on for four or five years where the only clear thing about the England goalkeepers is you're the number three, but there's no number one. And you've got Shilton and Clements being alternated. Did you ever think that your form in those four or five years merited you being thrown into that equation? I didn't look at it like that. I looked at it in the fact that I was a member of an England football squad. And if you think where I'd come from and what, you know, my, my roots, to play for your country once or to play for your country 125 times, you can only play at that level. You can't go any higher than that. It was such an honour to, to be picked for the squad for a start off. But to actually play a game, I was, I was in awe of what was going on. I always got myself ready when we, you know, we used to play a game on a Saturday night and then we'd travel up Sunday morning to meet up with the squad, play the game on the Wednesday and we'd be back at our clubs on Thursday. Um, I always took every call up as, as I was going to play. And I trained and trained and trained. And I always wanted to be in the squad. I think I got left out early doors when Ron took over because he only wanted ever to, to have two goalkeepers. And he said that to me. I think it was actually we played West Ham when he first took over. And he said, well, I'm only thinking of going two goalkeepers. And something happened and he changed it back to three. It was just an honour to be in that in that group of people and an honour to be in the same breath as uh, Pete Shilton and Ray Clement. And when I knew there was other goalkeepers around at that time, that any one of us could have played in the first team, it wouldn't have made any difference. Well, it was a, a ridiculously strong era for English goalkeeping, and we'll come to that in a bit because there's a, a very specific question I want to ask you about that. Meantime, a game that you play in, uh, you play against Brazil at Wembley in April 78 and a strong Brazil team as well, just before the 78 World Cup. Your recollections of that night? Playing at Wembley against Brazil, wow. Um, special. I let a goal in, I think it was Gilles who scored the goal. A little bit disappointed in the fact it went in near post-ish, but again, just got on with it and I thought I did all right. But I learned an, an amazing lesson I learned after. I was talking to one of their coaches who could speak English. And he said, because of my size, they'd worked on, especially Revelino. Revelino was playing for Brazil. He used to take all the free kicks. And it, he had an ability, well, he had an amazing left foot, an amazing ability. They determined the fact, because I was six foot four, six foot five, I would struggle with a ball on the floor. So every free kick they had, he, he had this ability to make the ball bounce just in front of the keeper. He, he actually developed it that he was like a skip ball into the goalkeeper. And he found it very, very difficult indeed. Very difficult. It was amazing how they looked into the game in such detail. We come to the 77-78 season at City. Uh, Colin Bell has made his doomed comeback. He gets a wonderful reception, I think, when he when he comes back after about 18 months or even a couple of years, I think. It's such a long time out. We've got Dennis Stewart leaving for the States, which was unusual really for the time, given he was still in his 20s, fabulously talented player. Surely that, that must have been a big loss for City. It was Dennis's decision. And I think a, a lot of Dennis's decision was, was because he didn't get 
running the uh, England squads and he made a decision, uh, I think money had a lot to do with it as well, to go abroad and we, we as players were really shocked because we were like going great guns. Um, but he made that decision, maybe not the best, but you know he ended up coming back to us. Uh, but again, you know, to losing a, a player of that stature, he was a great, great finisher, great finisher. You know, we lost, and we lost Kenny Clements with a broken leg for a long time as well during that period. It was a lot of circumstances that didn't make us progress to the team we actually should have done. But the kingpin of that was the loss of Colin Bell. We're coming into a very dramatic time in your time at City. What's interesting here from this period, reading your book, reading about you, remembering the back end of your career, and also the City documentary that was made at the time, which we'll come to uh, in a moment or two. You've grown into a leader now at the club. You've been there a long time. So by this time, you're club captain. There's a, a period, I think, 78, the Polish World Cup skipper, Kazimierz Dana, a wonderful player, arrives. And it's clear that you had a warm relationship with him. And it saddened you that it was clear he had serious personal issues, which prevented City from seeing the best of him. I think the, the personal issues um, I don't really want to go into because sure. Kazi didn't, uh, he has died in tragic circumstances. But he, he brought something to the to the group, which was a laid back kind of attitude, and we all thought, wow, what to achieve what he'd achieved as a, a Polish international as a player, it was phenomenal. He was one of the best finishers I've ever come across, um, and he was coming from midfield. Wasn't the bravest of people, get, especially when Malcolm came back. We went to run in uh, round Wiltshire Park again, and I'm sure every Monday that. Kazian was at the club when Malcolm was there. Kazi never went to his Park because he always had an injury. Um, and it used to be always used to be funny for the lad. You, you know, he could speak very, very good English. But when it came to Wiltshire Park, his English seemed to disappear. <laughs> it was a hamstrung, hamstrung, it was instead of hamstring injury. But it happened to be every Monday he had a hamstrung injury. Uh, but it was sad. It was really sad. Uh, his wife was expecting, had a little boy, he brought with him to Manchester City. While he was at City, his wife became pregnant and uh, during that period of time, Kazi had a testimonial in um, back in Poland, which we went out to play in. And while we were out there, his wife went with us. And while we were there, she took ill and she had to stay in Poland and she stayed there till the baby was born. Uh, but unfortunately, the It's, uh, I think, around the time that Dana was at the club, 
there is I suppose the dramatic news you're you're called in to a meeting I think it's at a christening actually and I think there may have been club directors there and you're told as club captain they run an idea past you but it's clear that it's more than an idea and that is that Malcolm Allison is returning it was at a christening a dear friend of mine Dave Adams and his wife had picked me and Val up to go to this christening in uh, Wimslow and as I'm walking through the door, my wife and David and Maureen went to, were taken away and I was diverted into another room in the house. And in the house, there was, uh, I'm not, uh, there was a few directors in there. And uh, the words were something like, what's your thoughts about us bringing back Malcolm Allison? Uh, and I went, what for? And they said to become first team coach. And, I said, I don't actually think it would be a good idea, but there's a saying in football, never go back to where you had your successes. But it happened, and (laughs) so many strange scenarios happened during that period of time. As you say, I was club captain. I was maybe one of the senior members of the squad. Dave Watson was there, Kiddo was there, Kazi. It was just the, the way the club changed in the attitude to training. Tony was still the manager, but Tony didn't really have that much input in the training schedule. And we had people from everywhere coming into the club. We had uh, lady physiotherapists from like Eastern Eastern Europe. And we had uh, rugby union coaches coming to take coaching sessions. We went back to Wizardship Park, uh, which w- was horrendous. And, it, it, and then you get the scenarios of all the players that left, Dave Watson, Joe Royal. And the biggest ones that we could not put our head around was Gary and Peter. You know, Gary Owen and Peter Barnsley could not understand why you would get rid of an England England left winger who was a really, really, really good left left winger. And Gary Owen, who was England under-21 captain. And they, apparently, according to Gary's dad, he broke down in tears on his way down to sign for West Brom. He just didn't want to go, but, you know, that was the scenario. And then you hear, you know, that Malcolm wanted to get rid of me. Peter Swales took me into his office and, and said that you're not going anywhere. You know, I was relieved in one way, but after seeing all what happened after, you think, did they make the right decision? Because he just decimated what I, you know, what I thought was a really, really strong thing. His opinions were, this is the way he wanted, this is the way he could see what the young players like, you know, Tony Henry and Nicky Reid and Tommy Caton, Ray Ranson, he wanted them to progress through. But he brought these kids in on block. You know, it was unlike Liverpool who would buy a young kid or have a young kid, bring him into a first team and then take him out of the first team and learn his, learn his lesson in the reserves and bring him in again after a bit. But no, Malcolm brought all these kids in, put them in the team together. And we were getting some right good happening. And it didn't, it affected him in, you know, so many, so many different circumstances. It's also the money that was being spent, though. I mean, Steve Daly coming in for 1.4 million. Michael Robinson, a teenager, I think, 750,000 from Preston North End. This was serious money in, in 78, 79, wasn't it? It was. It was amazing. There's a funny story. Well, you might not think it's a funny story, but I was in um, Tampa uh, when Michael signed for Manchester City. And it was with Laurie McMenemy, Bob Wilson, Stevie Coppel, and we were by the pool and the, the guy came out the sliding doors at the back of the pool and said to Laurie, there's a phone call for you at reception. So Laurie, off Laurie goes and we're on. The next minute, Laurie appears through the door and kicks the lilo that he was on. 
And he said, oh, what on earth is your, well, he said it a little bit stronger than that, <laughs> is your manager doing? So I said, I'm like, what, why, what's he done now? And he said, he's just paid 750000 for Michael Robinson. And as a group, we all said, who's Michael Robinson? And Laurie said, he's a centre forward who plays for, for Preston North End. I said, it wouldn't mind, but two weeks ago, he only he offered 300000 for him and everybody in the managerial circle thought, what the hell is he playing 300000 for him? He said, and what makes it even worse is I bid £500,000 for you and he turned it down. And I'm thinking, what do you mean by him? Again, you know, that was Malcolm. Still to come on this week's When Shorts Were Short. I think we're going to play Earth of Berlin in a pre-season friendly and we were all on the bus waiting to go to the game and John Bond didn't get on the bus. Then he gets on the bus and says, I've just had a, a telephone call from the chairman, we're going to sign Graham, or we want to sign Graham, but we can't afford to sign him, put the down payment down, unless the players put off their loyalty bonuses. And I asked him, could he get off the coach and we'd have a chat? So we had a chat. I told them that I didn't agree with it because the state the club was in financially, you had a situation where Jimmy Rouse, the lad who used to do the dressing rooms, was actually emptying black plastic bags into green plastic bags because the club couldn't afford to buy, couldn't buy anything. What's clear for me watching the 8081 City documentary, which people can just watch on YouTube, we see all these Amazon football documentaries now, but they're very bland compared to this Manchester City documentary from 40 years ago now. What is clear from that is that you had this big brother, younger brother relationship with Malcolm Allison at the start of your career. He's returned. You're now one of the leaders at the club. You're a senior pro. The relationship between the pair of you had altered. I'm watching the dynamics between him and Tony Book in the dressing room, and you're almost thinking, poor Tony Book, what, what is he doing there? I mean, he was the manager, but it's clear that Malcolm Allison is the guy running things. Yeah. It's, it's just a very strange situation. It was, it was, because the one game that always sticks out in my mind when it really, really came to notice was when we got beat by Borussia Mönchengladbach in the UEFA Cup and we had like the likes of Brian Kidd and Kazi sat on the bench and we lost we got knocked out of the that, I think it might have been the quarterfinals I'm not quite sure but on our way back we used to travel back straight after the game and we at the airport Malcolm walked in with his tracksuit on with his big long coat and his hat on and his cigar walking through the the uh, reception at the airport and Tony, Roy and the lads were all pushing all the skips behind him. And it was a strange scenario and it, it didn't rest well with anybody. I go back to Johnny Hart. You know, Tony was a really, really good manager in his own right, a really good manager. And again, circumstances made it that we didn't carry on as we've gone through in the, in the you know, in further back in the interview, that we didn't get to where we should have done. It was strange. It was just a strange, strange time. And, you, you, you know, you'd have players like Mickey Channon who, who'd get up in meetings and just say, you're insulting my intelligence and walk out. You can't, you'd, you have to be there to, to see what was going on. We were all called to a meeting in the uh, players' lounge 
And Malcolm brought this guy in, took his coat off, this guy took his coat off and hung it on the, the, the hat stand. And Malcolm said, I'm going now and I'll leave you with this uh, with this gentleman. He's going to talk to you about psychology and things like that. And it looked like the guy just walked off the street. As soon as he opened his mouth, we all started looking at each other, especially the senior players. And that's when Mickey got up and said, you're insulting my intelligence and walked out. And we all walked out after him. The guy really, I'm talking about Malcolm, I loved him dearly because he gave me the opportunity, took so much of his time as a coach to help me as much as he possibly could. He was 20 years before his time. You know, if he'd have been around in like you know in the early 90s, he should have been put in charge of the, the new, what you would call the England youth setup. But he would have been phenomenal bringing young players through. Phenomenal. Uh, just that he didn't seem to have the ability to handle senior players. Inevitably, he's sacked and we see John Bond arriving in this documentary. He arrives from Norwich in the autumn of 1980. There's a big improvement in the team. The young team are are fortified by the arrival of experience in the form of uh, Bobby McDonald, I think from Coventry, a fullback. There's Jerry Gale, Tommy Hutchinson, uh, you know, huge experience. The City team pulls away from the bottom. You reach the League Cup semi-finals. And in the FA Cup, an incredible, I mean, even now, 40 years on, it's just an incredible free kick from Paul Power, beats a very strong Ipswich team in the semi-final. What do you remember about that? Because that Ipswich team would have been very warm favourites that day. Oh, yeah, of course they were, yeah. And, uh, and I think that might have been their downfall because we were on a great run after John had come in. You know, we I think we lost the first game John took over. I think it might have been Birmingham City. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, after that, John changed all the training schedules, brought the, the three lads in because of the, the experience they brought to the club and steadied the ship. And I think if you look at it from when John took over to uh, the end of the season, we had a phenomenal run. And the, the semi-final was, it was just amazing against, you know, Marins and all, you know, all great mates of mine, Millsy and all the lads like that. It was a fantastic result when we went into extra time and, but anyway, we won and it was, again, it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. You know, because we're so close with a lot of the lads of the Ipswich team within the England squad. I was in the England squad. They said to us that Bobby Robson had said to them, don't worry about Joe today. He's way past his best and uh, we, we, we'll come out comfortable winners. And they, they told me that after, they, but that's what Bobby said. We were, as we're coming into the dressing room, we're, as rightly you, you do, you celebrate with the champagne and with, with bottles of champagne given to us by Aston Villa. And I'll speak to Bernard after because we were having to get a, a committee together for the Foot Cup final for things. And Bernard said, you know, when we when we won the semi-final, we had them champagnes after the game, bottles of champagne. And he said that the, uh, the chairman had uh, put the bottles of champagne and uh, he charged the club for them. <laughs> Anyway, that's no. It just made a, another another step in the way we thought we were going at the, in those days because we thought John had come in, steadied the ship, different training, different players. We had then we brought Trevor Francis in after that. We thought we were going in the right direction, but unfortunately for other circumstances, it just didn't get there. Just quickly, we obviously the eighty-one Cup final has been done to death, but I just want to have a, a, a word about your performances in the two games, the the final and the replay. You won man of the match in both games. Watching those games now, some of the saves, especially, I think, from the replay, two incredible individual performances from you. Obviously, no consolation to you because you lost the cup final. But 
was that peak Joe Corrigan that season, that the form that you attained in the run-up to that cup final? I think it was at my peak for a few years. As a goalkeeper, you, you learn and learn and learn and you get to your peak, as they say, between you know, 26, 27, right the way through. What would I have been about? I'd have been in my early 30s then. It's one position that you learn every game you're playing. And when you come against players like Glenn Hoddle and the, the two Argentinians that were playing for Tottenham at the time, you're still learning. We, we lost you know, a typical FA again. How can you pick to, to have a replay for the first time at Wembley and then decide to play Brazil the Wednesday after the cup final and then have the replay at Wembley on the Thursday? Just beggars belief. You know, we had to travel back. People had to travel back. And the tickets for the replay went on open sale in London on the Sunday morning. So it's just crazy. We, we lost it on the Saturday. We, we didn't have the legs to... Uh, compete for that length of time on the uh, on the Thursday night and it, you know it's shown that Jerry wasn't able to at that stage of his career and the stage of the season to do two games so quickly after each other. I want the listener to, to bear in mind you've mentioned Trevor Francis the arrival of Trevor Francis from Forest the start of the 81-82 season that becomes very important for all the wrong reasons. Now, there are two games captured by Match of the Day in the space of four months, or less than that, I think, that illustrate something very dramatic at City. Boxing Day 81, and your form already that season, summer of 81, before they signed Ray Clement, Spurs have been linked with a move for you. And then Boxing Day 81, City turn up at Anfield, a very famous game. You beat Liverpool 3-1. I think you're top that Christmas. Turns out Liverpool make an inquiry to sign you not long after. Less than four months later, Main Road, Liverpool on their way to the title. They put five past City. What happened in those three to four months at City? We just run out of steam. It was, it was in, incredible because, as, as you say, we, we beat Liverpool on, on the Boxing Day. Um, and that was a game, I think it was 38, 40 years since we'd beaten Liverpool at Anfield before. Uh, when I got hit on the head at the end of the, when we scored the third goal, I turned around and as I'm running back towards the cop, a bottle hit me on the head. I, I was thinking the pie. There's a, there's an incident with a pie well, as well. That, that was my first game at Anfield. So I had the pie at one <laughs> and then they had the, the, the drink at the last. <laughs> it, was, it was just one of them strange, strange things. And it's, Totally unlike the cop. They were phenomenal, the cop. I've said it before, they're just phenomenal. But to ha- actually being hit, hit on the head, I'm sure he must have been a darts player because that's excellent. Going back to the, the, the question, you know, Liverpool weren't doing well and we were, we were top of the league. So that form fitted into that game at that time. After that game, Liverpool went on to become champions and we ended up mid-table, or I think maybe 10th, 11th or something like that. We just run out of steam and I can't put it down to anything because we, we trained the same, we did all the same things. John was still as enthusiastic as he was, his training methods didn't alter. But I, I honestly don't know. It's just That's just why football is football and that's why we love it so much or hate it. Let's round up your, your England career. You're part of the 82 World Cup squad, which if you break that squad down, just like the Euro 80 squad that went to Italy, a really strong England squad may not have done what it should have done perhaps in those competitions, but so many players, including yourself, had won European medals. 
England leave unbeaten after five games in Spain. There's a, a second group stage with Spain and West Germany, but England don't go through. What do you remember about that World Cup? The strength of the squad that I was involved in, and it shows you the strength of British football at that time. I look at often the, the picture of the team, you know, when we were at uh, West Park Lodge or West Lodge Park, the hotel we stayed in. The quality of those 22, 23 players that were involved in it were absolutely amazing. You, you, if you look at today's transfer dealings and transfers on players' heads, you, you look at that team, you, you think, wow, wow, how much would those have been worth? All English players, all playing in the top league, phenomenal. And there was another 22, 23 players who could have gone in and, and taken their place with ease. It was just, a, I thought, and the lads of, the, of that squad thought it was the best period of British football. They all talk about the 90s team after that. But that squad was phenomenal. Phenomenal. And both as players and as people, they were great set of lads. Great. Absolutely amazing. And, and such an honour to play in that group of people as well. Your time with the England setup, it finishes after the 82 World Cup. I want to ask you, as a, a former England keeper, as someone who was a keeper during a time when the English game had this just ridiculously deep pool of world-class goalkeepers and, and not just world-class keepers, but keepers who performed to a high level well into their thirties, the likes of you, Ray Clements, Peter Shilton, Phil Parks, you've got Jimmy Rimmer, Alex Stepney, Peter Bernetti, and they maintained that form well into their thirties. And I want to ask you in your capacity, not only as a former England goalkeeper, but as someone who went on to coach a lot of English goalkeepers. Why is it in the last 20 years, no other English keeper, David Seaman aside, has remained a formidable presence into their 30s? Because you've had David James, who you used to coach. He had a renaissance, but he'd had a big wobble in his mid to late 20s. Paul Robinson and Joe Hart ended up having identical careers. Loads of caps at the start. Spectacular tail off. Scott Carson struggled. I mean, why has this happened with English goalkeepers? I think a lot has to do with the fact that the game has gone from being a, a platform to give young players an opportunity from when I played. But the opportunity came because the finances of the game have changed and it was, you know, you try to bring local players through and it's changed to a, a circumstance where it's a quick fix because everybody wants so much money has been imported in, uh, it, yeah, imported into the game that it's a quick fix. Everybody wants to win, and the, the fear of relegation in today's football is is frightening because of the the finances. In our days, it was for the long term, and nowadays it's for the short term. You know, if if a goalkeeper gets injured nowadays. They go out and buy a new, or if any player gets injured, they go out and buy a new, a new player as quickly as possible. You know, the squad systems made it different. Goalkeepers of today, if you're a second choice goalkeeper, you don't play unless it's a cup game or a, a friendly game. In our days, when I got dropped, you know, early on in my career, you played in the reserves and you played in stadiums that you played in in the first team against good players who were coming through or good players who were injured or good players that were on their way out or on their way down in their career. And it was a platform that isn't there anymore. Seems nowadays at eight years of age, signed on at eight years of age, and you go right the way through at that age group. Well, you know, you go from eights to nines, nines to tens. Whereas, you know, in our days, I was in the B team, I'm sorry, the A and B teams when I got my first team debut. 
and it was only by chance. So they, they, they couldn't go out and buy it, they didn't have the finances. But today it seems a different way. And the goalkeeping side is mainly because the influx of foreign coaches who bring their, their entourage with them with foreign goalkeeping coaches, which they have their own way of being and training goalkeepers. I don't always agree with them, but that's the way it's gone and that's the way the game has changed so much with regards to goalkeepers. 82-83, that's a, a pivotal season for you and City. As we mentioned a few minutes ago, Trevor Francis is a big factor in what goes on to happen through no fault of his own. Trevor Francis, he, he moves to Sampdoria after just a year at City. That money isn't reinvested. There's a situation that arises where the club asks the players if they'll defer their bonuses that season so you can sign Graham Baker from Southampton. As club captain, you're unhappy. You try to talk to the players, but the move goes ahead. It's clear then at, at that point that something is wrong at the club. I think we're going to play Earth of Berlin in a pre-season friendly and we were all on the bus waiting to go to the game and John Bond didn't get on the bus. Then he gets on the bus and says, uh, just had a, a telephone call from the chairman. We're going to sign Graham or we want to sign Graham, but we can't afford to sign him. Let's put the down payment down unless the players put off their loyalty balances. And I asked him, could he get off the coach and we'd have a chat? So we had a chat. I told him that I didn't agree with it because the state the club was in financially, you had a situation where Jimmy Rouse, the lad who used to do the dressing rooms, was actually emptying black plastic bags into green plastic bags because the club couldn't afford to buy, couldn't buy anything. And that circumstance ended up with the reason why I actually left Manchester City. It's just that they didn't have any money. A lot of the players said that they would put their loyalty bonuses and get them later. I don't know how long, I think it was quite a long time until they got the bonuses, but they actually got them. But I didn't, I, I wouldn't agree to that at all. John Bond resigns in the spring of 83 after a 4-0 defeat in the Cup to Brighton. John Benson, his assistant, takes over. I know that the club were in trouble financially, but wasn't there a, a bigger name that could have come in at the time, even on a short-term basis, just to galvanise a club that was clearly in trouble? I, I'm sure there would have been, but I couldn't believe that John got the sack, John Bond I'm talking about. For, again, from stories that you hear in and around the uh, circumstances were the fact that John asked to sell a player for money to strengthen the squad. With what he did with Jerry Gow, Tommy Hutch and Bobby Mack, you could have given him the money and his ability to, to look at players and to get players in of that kind of stature, you would have thought the club would have gone along, but they didn't. Therefore, I think that had a lot to do with John leaving. And that had a lot to do with me leaving, because after that 4-0 defeat, Alex Williams had come down. I said to Alex, as I was going into the dressing room, I said, it's yours now because I don't think I'll be here much longer. And not long after that, I got a phone call from the chairman asking to go in and I went down to his office in Altrium and he said what's going on because there'd been a rumour that Seattle Sounders were interested in taking me to America and I said well what's your feelings about it he said you can do what you want so I said well in other words you want me to go and he said no no I didn't say that I said no you did because the last time I was in this circumstance it was when Liverpool came in they wanted to buy me and you told me that I'm not going anywhere I stuck by that and you told me that I had a, a job here for life. But now you're really in a, in a roundabout way telling me that I'm, I'm going. 
So I said, I'll go then if that's the way you want me to do. And that didn't come out in the press because a lot of the fans thought I just, because we were, what, 17th, 16th, 17th position when I left, I dumped, it, dumped on them and I didn't. It was just I was told that the club couldn't afford me. It was a circumstance that, that I had to go. When you left, did you actually think that City could go down? No, no, I didn't think that. I thought they were too strong to go down. No, they were down at the bottom end of the table. Well, I didn't think they were any in any dire circumstances that they would go down. And that Steve Daly and I, funny enough, we were in uh, Seattle and we watched the game. We, we watched the game live, actually. And we, we just, after the result, we just, because we had a game that night, uh, we just couldn't believe that they'd lost. Or we, uh, they would not believe that they'd lost. They'd, that they'd actually gone down. We couldn't believe it. When you left for uh, Seattle, there's a, a really touching scene at the airport when Big Helen and a large number of City fans turn up to wave you off. I would imagine that must have left you with a lump in your throat. It did. Uh, it was, it was, that was an amazing send-off. But the biggest send-off, which, which really hit me, was when uh, I left. I didn't play in the game. when I, My last game at Main Road was when I was watching the game and when Alex was playing. And I went on to the pitch and just waved goodbye and the crowd were absolutely amazing. Um, but the, the, that was Helen through and through, and all the, all a bunch of lads and girls who followed her around were all at the airport. It was, a, it was an amazing send off. That, that it did, it did, it brought a big lump in my throat, and it was sad in the circumstances because the circumstances had actually hadn't come out in the press properly, and it just looked as if I'd gone, and that wasn't the case. You left a club that was in financial trouble to move to a league that, unbeknown to you, was in financial trouble. So it was a relatively short stay at uh, Seattle, wasn't it? Very short stay. Very, very short stay. But it, again, it was, it was an amazing part of my career. It was, it was like going, going and playing friendly matches every game because there was no real pressure. You'd play four games at home and then you'd travel for four games away from home and you'd come back and... You know, you could be playing on the East Coast, you could be playing down in, in Florida, you could be playing on, in California. It was, it was a fantastic. There's a lot of good players around, but the most majority of them either hadn't made it in the leagues that they played in in Europe, including ours, or they were on the, on the last of their career, you know, the, the final throws of their career. And a lot of them who'd gone out there a little bit earlier had earned a lot of money, a lot of money. And as, as we've touched on before, Dennis, Dennis went to play for New York Cosmos. He made a lot of money, I'm sure he did, um, while playing for them. But unfortunately, the league couldn't sustain those kind of wages week in and week out. You're back in England in September 83. You signed for newly relegated Brighton, who still had a relatively strong team at that point. Steve Foster, Jimmy Case, Gordon Smith, Tony Grealish. But things don't go to plan. Jimmy Melia, the manager, is sacked shortly after you sign and you don't quite see eye to eye with his successor, Chris Catlin. Was the problem there from the beginning or was it just something that developed over the season? I realised something wasn't quite right when I actually went into Mike Bamber, who was the chairman of Brighton at the time, when I went in to sign for them. Because Jimmy and I went up to meet him in his office and as I sit down, Jimmy went to sit down and Mike Bamber says, no, no, Jimmy... I don't need you in this meeting. So we actually went through it all. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going on here? I've only, you know. And then, cut a long story short, and if we just negotiated between ourselves, and I signed that day, and not long after, Jimmy got the sack. 
They had some really, really good players, some young, good young players as well. You know, like Steve Penny, he was a, an incredible uh, talent coming up. But I, I can't remember actually what happened in his, his later career. But he was a great little footballer, not a bad team. And Ron Greenwood, uh, who was living in Brighton, said to me, when you sign for Brighton, you'll always find out you have more friends at Brighton than you did when you were in Manchester because they'll all want to come down and come on holiday to Brighton. It was a great place, great people. It was just like you were on holiday all the time. You know, they didn't have what you would call a designated training centre. You trained anywhere you could find, sometimes in the park at the back at the the Goldstone ground. But it was a lovely little club. Uh, I enjoyed the time and unfortunately didn't agree with the manager. I think that again become of experience and he tried to do the same as Malcolm tried when in his second period back, changed the club to what he wanted to do. And again, it, it didn't work and the club suffered from it. You have loan spells with Norwich and Stoke, age 36 in 1984. Injury forces you to retire. What, what was the injury? Um, I was at Stoke. They wanted me to stay for three months. And I said, because of the circumstances, I was at the club with uh, Brighton. I said, no, I want to go back and sort my situation out with Brighton. Played in a, a reserve team game at Queen's Park Rangers on the infamous uh, AstroTurf pitch that they have. And I got flipped by a forward who came in for a low ball and I, he flipped me up in the air and I landed on, on my neck and uh, was paralysed down my left-hand side because the disc in my neck had burst out and affected all the nerves on my left side of my body. And I had to have a bone graft uh, from my hip placed into my neck so I, I couldn't play again. Brighton were like trying to fight the insurance thing because they said I'd got wear and tear in my neck anyway. So they weren't going to be wanting to pay insurance things out. I had like two, three months of watching the season from the stands with, a, with my neck in a brace. And I watched what I was should have been playing in and I just didn't like what I was watching, um, which made the decision at the end when I was told if I did play again and got the wrong knock on my neck, I could have been paralysed from the neck downwards because the bone graft could have shattered and gone through my spinal cord, which that, that made a massive difference. You retire in 84. We're going to wrap up now. We're going to, we're going to jump forward five years when you return to the game. When I actually read your book and right at the start, you're talking about those goalkeeping sessions as a, as a young kid with Malcolm Allison and the specialist goalkeepers, right away I'm thinking, okay, this is 20, 25 years before Joe Corrigan starts doing this himself. So this is, the seed of this idea was sown pretty early. The thing that put it into my mind was, if you recall, going back to the game against West Ham, when Bert Trotman took me upstairs and told me about, gave me all that help and encouragement and telling me how, how to cope with things. I... I had it in my mind then saying, why isn't Bert Trotman at Manchester City teaching me these things or telling me these things? Because a man of his experience, I would have, I would have been 24 hours a day with him, you, you know, to learn. I wanted to learn about goalkeeping. I wanted to, to be the best. And to have people like Bert around me would have been fantastic. Since that day, I want, I always wanted to have it in the back of my mind. I would love to give what I learned in football back to people in the game, back to the young kids, back to the, you know, the, the position that I love and I still love. I wish I could still play, but 
it, it was just something I always wanted to do. And it, it was the birth of the goalkeeping coaches around that time. It started off with a club on a Monday morning, a club on an, another club on a Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, Thursday, Thursday afternoon, Friday. It was one of those scenarios. Every week I was travelling 1,800 miles a week in my car to do these jobs. And it, it's just a thing I wanted to do, plus the fact it was a job. I was at Middlesbrough. Brian Robson took over as manager at Middlesbrough and he asked me, would I like to go full-time there? I'd just joined Liverpool. Uh, Roy Evans had just taken over from Graham Souness and so I had to go into to Roy and said to Roy, I've been asked by Middlesbrough to go there full-time. And he says, no, no, we want you to come here full-time. Then that turned out to have 10 great years as as a, the goalkeeping coach at Liverpool. It, it was the birth of a new idea in football. There weren't many of you at the time doing it, were there? No, no, there was a very, very few, very few. Alan Hodgkinson, I think, was one of the pioneers. And he actually got in touch with me and he'd just come back from having a heart attack. I think he was, I can't remember whether he was with the club or he just joined Scotland as their full-time goalkeeping coach. He sent me a, a message saying, just be careful, Joe. It is a bad for your health, driving up and driving down. And, you know, it, it was. You, you didn't stay overnight. They couldn't afford it. And it wasn't, you know, it was just something to do. And it was just something I wanted to do to put back into the game that I had such a, a great career in. But when, Liverpool, when a club like Middlesbrough and Brian Robson and then all of a sudden Liverpool said, no, you will want your ears full time. I had to jump at the opportunity because if I'd have gone to Middlesbrough, it, be, it might have meant me selling my house here and moving up to the northeast. The day after when Liverpool said, no, you would like you to come here, it was only an hour's drive. So, you know, even though it was travelling every day, it wasn't like travelling all over the country and getting back to, to Macclesfield nearly every night. Well, Aberdeen, when I used to fly up there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read that and I thought, no, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, I wouldn't be flying up to... Uh... It, was it was an amazing concept because I used to fly up there. They used to put uh, like half, what was it, half six flight from Manchester to Aberdeen and then I'd take the first team in the morning, take the kids in the afternoon and get the half past five plane back to Manchester. And then, no, that was a Wednesday. I used to do another team on a Thursday. Middlesbrough used to travel up to Middlesbrough on a Thursday and Friday. It was amazing. Very last question. You had a brilliant career. You were an outstanding goalkeeper. But could Joe Corrigan, the goalkeeper coach, have improved Joe Corrigan, the goalkeeper? If so, how? Yes, because Joe Corrigan, the goalkeeping coach, as a player, I would have wanted him there all the time. And that's why I brought it in that I said about Bertram. And I just wish somebody like Malcolm Allison, but he wasn't at the club at that time. Uh, yes, he was. I do beg your pardon. Yes, he was. I had the foresight to say to the club, let's get Bert Trauman in full time and be in a situation that I ended up being in Liverpool because all we ever did was talk about talk about goalkeeping as, as a coach. The biggest thing you can do for a goalkeeper is talk to them. They always have the ability. And I, I'll say something now that might seem strange. I think Football has got the wrong the goalkeeping scenario the wrong way around because I feel that the goalkeeping coach should be the person who's in charge of the academy goalkeeping coaches because the head goalkeeping coach I should say because the first team goalkeeping coach should be looking after the best goalkeeper in the club so he would have come through all that 
what is short in today's, especially with the English goalkeepers, is that the, uh, not being, please don't think I'm being disrespectful to anybody, but the knowledge of the likes of Schiltz, myself, Clem, Parks, and all, Phil Parks and all those people are really lost at the top end because it's the bottom end that, that struggles and needs the input for the, that quality of player to be able to say to the goalkeeping, first team goalkeeping coach, go on, there's your product, now you take it further. Thank you to Joe Corrigan for his time. Another guest, again, that was very generous with their time. What you'll find in this week's show notes will be links to some of what we covered with Joe, including highlights of the 81 FA Cup final replay. Skip through that. You've seen the goals. There are two stunning goals in that replay. We all know that. But forward to some of the outstanding saves Joe Corrigan pulls off in that game at a time when a football could still take your head off. I'm also including the 1976 USA Bicentennial Tournament game against Italy in which Joe made his England debut. You will see glimpses in that link of the baseball pitch Joe made his debut in and I can confirm it just looks odd. And lastly, just because we talk about him a bit, a link to some footage of the late Polish playmaker Kazimierz Dana, who Joe spoke about so warmly in the interview. City fans didn't see the best of Dana, but I think certainly the older generation of fans will remember, as Joe said when he spoke so fondly of the old Polish captain, that Dana didn't have the best of times here off the pitch. And I just thought it would be a nice thing to put a link to a short video that shows Dana in action at the 78 World Cup, showing the languid quality that would have made him a much sought-after player in the modern game. Appreciate you guys listening. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you download it from and uh, share and retweet, repost, etc. Social media links, reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially critical, as I said last week. In fact, they are all important, particularly to one-man shows like this. This show doesn't have the resources of the bigger shows. If you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a good rating and review. It will increase this show's visibility in the Apple Podcast store and help me to keep the show going the podcast can be followed on both twitter and instagram at shorts were short and facebook.com forward slash shorts were short if you want to join the group page please do all my work can be found at danielruiztizen.com appreciate your time the artwork is by tom hadfield the music is 80 synth pop by toto cyberspace i've been daniel ruiz tyson this has been when shorts were short If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it.